0: Welcome to The Jess Larson Show, where I interview innovators and leaders. Today on the show, I'm really excited to have Samara Cohen. Samara, thanks for doing this.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: I'm going to read a bit of a bio, and then I want you to fill in the high points that I miss. okay?
1: Okay, you got it.
0: BlackRock's first ever chief investment officer of ETF and index investments. At BlackRock, Samara Cohen is responsible for approximately $6 trillion of the firm's $9.5 trillion in assets under management. In her current role, Samara leads the investment management of 1,300-plus ETFs globally, the most of any ETF provider, and she leads a diverse team to modernize the indexing industry and ETF markets to help all types of investors achieve financial well-being. Beyond her professional mission to make world markets better, safer, and more inclusive, Samara is also passionate about championing women and others who feel like they don't fit in within the finance industry. How's that?
1: Well, that's my bio. You know what it doesn't say is that I was a theater major, and so that's one of the reasons I'm passionate about championing people finding careers maybe in places that that surprised them. And of course, my title is mouthful: Chief Investment Officer of ETFs and Index Investments at BlackRock. But basically, what I tell my friends and my family, and you know, most importantly, my kids. I'm the mom of two teenagers, and I have a bunch of you know teen nieces and nephews too is that I help investors access the financial markets around the world to create retirement savings for themselves, to build better financial health and wellness for whatever those goals are. What makes me really excited, I mean, you threw out a bunch of big numbers and there are some big numbers in my bio, but the number that I care about most is the number of people that we think are actually investors in our exchange-traded funds. That's what ETF is and our index portfolios. And that's about 120 million people around the world. So if we're going to take one number away from this conversation, that's the one that I'm the most excited about.
0: Oh, that's so exciting. When we talked last week, I was telling you my undying love for Warren Buffett and Shirley Munger. And it's interesting when a number of the books about them were written and Warren would say, hey, if you don't have the time and expertise to really make investing in your circle of competence, I really endorse you getting into index funds and products like what you make. And it's interesting for me, you know, I don't have your level of experience, but I have been in for, since 2004 is when I started at Citigroup. And I mean, the amount of people that have followed that advice <laughs> and now 120 million with you guys, it's interesting how much more helpful that is than a random stock tip from your brother-in-law at the Super Bowl. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah. Absolutely. And what's interesting is that like, if you think about the headlines over the last couple of years, you'd think that a lot of individual investors who are coming into the markets are largely buying crypto and buying meme stocks. But the fact is the data shows that even more than either of those two things, they are buying exchange traded funds. And that's a good thing for investors because really what exchange traded funds allow you to do is commit a whole lot less capital, but still get a broadly diversified portfolio. So I could nerd out for way longer than we have in this conversation on the history of index funds. But an interesting fact is that the first index fund was created, you know, about 50 years ago around the same time that the first commercial microchip was. And that's not coincidental. It required a great deal of computing power to actually invest across hundreds and even thousands of securities. But what that did is it allowed individual investors to get diversification with a lot less money in the market. So that's what's really exciting and why I like to think about index funds and then kind of their 30-year-later sister, which was exchange-traded funds as a disruptive technology in markets.
0: I'd love to hear what you think of my explanation. I was listening to some of your other interviews on my way to work this morning. I was driving my 16-year-old son to school, so he was listening to you. And he said, Dad, what's an ETF? <laughs> What is that? And I said, well, it's a really great way for regular people to buy what feels like one stock and get all this diversification without having to go through and buy all these different things for their own portfolio from an efficiency standpoint. That was my 16-year-old version. What do you think?
1: Well, what did he think is my question? Because I will tell you my 15-year-old son and my 13-year-old daughter, I tried to explain to them multiple times what an ETF was. And They said they got it, wasn't clear that they got it. And then six months ago or so, BlackRock launched a TikTok. So I said, you know what, do me a favor, follow BlackRock TikTok. And they did. And this isn't just for the ETF and index business. There's a lot of stuff that we put out on our TikTok. But at the dinner table, a couple of weeks later, my son all of a sudden explained what an ETF was and he got it from TikTok, which is a really interesting lesson in kind of putting information like where, however your consumers want to get information. And in this particular 60 second video, it was really a teen walking into a room saying, what even is an ETF?" And her friend was holding a box of crayons and they said, well, with an ETF, you can get this entire box of crayons instead of the one crayon. And that's like being able to get the whole stock market in one box instead of having to pick your stock. And that clicked. So, thank you, TikTok.
0: You know what's funny though is there's so many people that write it off as like, oh, that's for 11 year olds dancing, right? And actually, the fastest growing demographic right now is 35 and up.
1: I know. It's so interesting. I love to cook. And so, my daughter, who is always trying to convince me, you know, we finally taught her it's okay if you use TikTok, but if you're going to cite something from TikTok at the dinner table, you have to name your source. (laughs) But He's really wanted to to kind of show then the diversity of information on TikTok. And so she got me into all of these different cooking things on TikTok. And it's actually, there's there's a lot of stuff out there. But in a few different instances, you know, with BlackRock TikTok, actually, both of my kids have all of a sudden come up with some tidbit. Like the other day, it was, what is a basis point? And they explained what a basis point was. And that was like thrilling for me. It's pretty interesting to see how that unfolds.
0: You know, what? let's tell people right now, because I can say, I was in finance for like years before anybody explained what basis points are to me. I'm like, hold on. I'm used to measuring a rate of return in percentage. What do you mean basis point?
1: Totally. What I used to do, because this drove me crazy, I just learned whatever people said were basis points. When I first part of my career, I was on the trading floor at Goldman. I just learned to quickly divide by 10,000. Didn't want to explain it. Didn't want to talk about percentage points, but that was like my trick to quickly figure out what it was. But basically. 50 basis points is half a percentage point. That is not how TikTok explained it, but it's kind of this shorthand that we use all of the time in markets. And it's the tip of the iceberg, which is one of the things I'm really passionate about, both for just anybody looking to invest in markets, but also for anybody considering a career in markets is sometimes it can seem so impenetrable just because of the lingo we insist on using. And I think the history of that is interesting, right? On a trading floor, if you can't talk really quickly and exchange information really quickly, you can lose a lot of money. So you kind of develop this language and this jargon. But I remember the night before my first day on the trading floor at Goldman Sachs, I was telling somebody how scared I was that I wasn't going to be smart enough and I wouldn't understand anything. And he said, I think you're confusing experience with intelligence. Like you're going to have to learn the language. And that's true. But while you learn the language, you can feel very much like maybe you aren't smart enough and you can't do this and you don't have the confidence. The language can be a big barrier. So I really try to check myself on that use of lingo and acronyms. And frankly, it's one of the reasons it's really cool for me to have the opportunity to have this conversation with you because you do talk to a much broader kind of group of people than finance nerds, So, so I can't get away with just, you know, throwing out acronyms and, and basis points and stuff. <laughs>
0: That's so fun. Well, let's go way back. Where'd you grow up? What did your parents do?
1: I grew up here in New York city. I now live about two blocks from the hospital where I was born, but I've lived in every other native neighborhood in the city. I'm a native New Yorker. My father was a brain surgeon. He was a pediatric neurosurgeon. My mother was the uh, CEO of our house. I am the oldest of five kids and we span 18 years. So I think maybe because my father's career was taking care of sick children. He, it helped him to go home to a a house full of like healthy kids. And so they having children, so there are five of us, but most of my family is actually medicine and teaching. I'm really the only finance person. Two of my brothers are accountants and we're kind of the black sheep of the family, but we have a family very passionate about brains and teaching.
0: I love the way you describe your mom, CEO of the household.
1: CEO of the household. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Tell me about that.
1: Well, what's interesting is my mom, I'm pretty sure would have been CEO of wherever she chose to be. When she had me, my father was in his residency. I think before she had me, she worked in insurance and then she had me and stopped working to really kind of run the house, I think, so that my father could have this really intense career, which is what the career of a pediatric neurosurgeon is. But she always encouraged me and frankly, never like it was, it was never a question for her that I would go on and have some sort of career, even though she didn't after she started having children, which is just kind of interesting looking back on that with respect to, you know, what was needed for him to kind of live his life the way he did. Especially once I started thinking about having kids and when I got married, really having a conversation with my husband, Adam, and saying, hey, I think looking back on it, my mom had to be the bad guy like pretty much all the time. And she did that so that in the little time my dad was around, she really preserved that time so that I had a tremendous relationship with my father even though like he wasn't around a lot. And I credit her with that, but I did not want to be the bad guy in my relationship, but you know, to my husband's credit, we actually had that conversation and I think one of the reasons I can do what I do today, one of the biggest reasons is that we really do you know, co-parent, we have our swim lanes. Like I'm definitely the, your hurt, bleeding or sick parent. And he's definitely the fun parent, <laughs> but it's definitely a
0: split. So were you into theater as a young kid before college or yeah. did that started later well, in life?
1: Well, actually, even before I got into theater, cause most of my theater stuff was backstage. It wasn't performing. The very first thing I did was perform and specifically I could sing. So because I could sing, I did a bunch of like musical theater stuff when I was young. Somehow I got recruited. Somebody heard me sing uh, on stage sometime and they asked if I would do TV and radio. And they told me that they could get a recording of my voice. I wouldn't have to go to auditions and I could just show up and record stuff. So I did that. And the cool thing about that is by the time I got to college, I realized I didn't really like being on stage. I loved production. I loved kind of the backstage directing, designing, stage management. And I worked for summers in regional theater companies. But the reason I was able to do that is anytime they played one of my radio commercials, I got a check in the mail. So I managed to save enough money by the time I got to college that I could kind of go out and do these nonprofit, pretty much unpaid theater internships for a few years. So it definitely was kind of the arc of what I did. But when I got to college, what I was really interested in was the power of storytelling and wanting to have a positive impact on the world through storytelling. And I liked the event of live theater and what happened when you had actors telling a story in a room with the live audience. And that's what I wanted to be part of. I think what I missed is that I really liked math and. When I got to college, I had a lot of like advanced placement credit and stuff in, in math. And so I thought, terrific, I'm just going to focus on honing my theater arts skills I never have to take another math class. And I found that I missed it. And so I ended up taking an econ class, which was my first exposure to economics. And it felt to me like math with a purpose. And from there, I kind of pursued it. I ended up getting a dual degree. A BSc Con in financial engineering, see more, more acronyms, and a Bachelor of Arts in, in theater. But I kind of found the combination of the two in college.
0: I'm interested because I know we got to talk for a minute about this last week, but I'd love to hear more about, in your mind, both the arts and producing the arts. It seems like you feel like it is a genuine advantage to what you do now. And I'd love to hear how you think it helps you as you shepherd over $5 trillion.
1: Well, it helps me in a whole bunch of ways. Probably the hardest to articulate is just it's all of the things that you do contribute to the, to the person that you are. And certainly all of the theater and arts that I did, it just kind of makes me who I am. But specifically, there's a few angles. First, what I was best at in theater, I would kind of call scale operations. I spent a summer at Williamstown Theater Festival in the production office where there are multiple different stages having multiple productions over the course of a summer and you have to really orchestrate when the crews come in when you break down the sets when you put up the sets how you feed people like when the rehearsals happen and I love scale operations and I loved that in theater context but when I first walked onto a trading floor which by the way happened because of a Goldman Sachs diversity initiative when I was at business school I wasn't Seeking out trading floor opportunities, kind of for the reason we discussed earlier. I was super intimidated by the concept of being on a trading floor, which I envisioned correctly would be mostly men, kind of yelling things that I didn't understand. But Goldman was looking for more women in their markets division, and they invited me to come visit, and I did. And I walked onto the floor, and it was that same environment, that kind of orchestral environment of a really complex theater production. And I think because I had been in those like cacophonous situations, and I really loved to bring order to those types of situations, despite the fact that it was actually mostly men kind of in a language that I largely didn't understand, I thought I could do this and I would like being here. So that was one part of the journey of how I think what I did and what I was best at in theater applies to what I do now, because certainly managing over 2000 index portfolios in, you know, stock markets and bond markets around the world is extremely orchestral and requires a lot of choreography and scale. The other piece of it is the people piece of it. And and I think there are analogs in so many different professions, but for me, in addition to kind of managing and production, I loved directing And one of the things you learn as a director is, you know, one of the sayings, which is absolutely true, is that casting is 95% of directing, putting the right people in the right jobs. And now, of course, in my job, I'm not managing $6 trillion on my own. I have an incredibly talented group of partners and colleagues and teams around the world and getting the right people who can work together like an ensemble cast. That's the other part of how I think theater really informs how I do it.
0: I think there's so many good nuggets in there. I'm going to have to write notes after this. I want to talk about this idea of casting. I think earlier in my career as an entrepreneur, you know, on this mergers and acquisitions team for Citigroup. And then I basically quit to become an entrepreneur in different finance roles. But a finance entrepreneur is how I think about myself, sort of a traditional finance person, right? And I think early on, I thought about people more like the income producing assets we bought. I'm just like, mix and match and, oh, we need someone who does this like that. And it wasn't like a negative thing, but I feel like the more I get to interview, like really high achievers like yourself and people from all sorts of disciplines, like my attitude changes more and more and more towards what you're saying of like, no, think about business more like a pro sports team. Like, don't worry so much about the equipment, worry about the player. Or like, you know, we have some folks from the classified divisions of special operations that have been on here. And like my thing is, I feel like you could throw those guys out of an airplane, they lose all their gear and all they've got is a big pin, and they're still going to go rescue that hostage from ISIS or something, you know? And this idea of, as you call it, casting, like as the years go on, I just get become more and more and more and more of a believer. And I think my question for you is, when you think about attracting the right talent, what's something that's worked for you over your career? What's your current philosophy on attracting the top talent to want to come cast with you?
1: It's investing a lot of time in building pipelines and getting to know people. And some of the people I'm proudest of recruiting happened after kind of years of of conversation with them. And I think there's a lot of skill in interviewing and in recruiting. I have on my iPhone a list of notes, which I usually refer to before I interview somebody, but just what are great questions to ask? Because I think when you first start interviewing people and you have to fill a job, it's so easy to look for the plug and play. Who has the experience? Who has done something similar? Whereas really, if you think about the most important thing to figure out, I think in an interview is if somebody has the capabilities, basically, which you can figure out usually based on what they've done, what's their passion? What motivates them? What's the one thing they've done they're proudest of? What's the one thing they wish they could go back and redo? Where did they make a mistake? How did they learn from it? I think those are the types of questions when you find out what makes somebody the most excited to get out of bed in the morning. That's what you want to find out in an interview because the people who are really motivated by what they're doing are the ones that do the best. But it takes some skill to uncover that, particularly, I think, if you're trying to recruit more diversity, which we are. I like to say we can't get the next. 100 million investors onto our platform, if we don't have a set of investment professionals that reflect the diversity of the investors around the world who we want to attract to our platform, you have to look to adjacencies and not necessarily kind of traditional, certainly not finance backgrounds. You know, it's interesting to your point on um, some of your episodes on special ops, which I've listened to. I was a big fan. When I was at Goldman, I was very involved in recruiting from our veterans program. And I've seen, you know, really great stories of military veterans, you know, transitioning into financial careers, particularly careers on the trading floor. I had one really funny experience one summer with somebody who I immediately hired when he told me this story. This guy was excellent. He had served in the Navy. He had done three counter piracy tours in Somalia and he did a bunch of rotations. And I found him laughing after the mid-year reviews or the mid, you know, internship reviews. And I said, what's so funny? And he said, you know, I just had my review with the mortgage desk. And they said they worried that I wasn't stressed out enough on the trading floor. And he was like, See? I have no idea what stress is. <laughs> and and I thought that was hilarious. And I hired him, although he did describe counter piracy as total boredom and 1% like utter panic and terror. (laughs) I was like, you know what? I think that seems like a reasonable adjacency for a market's career. So it's those type of conversations.
0: So if you were going to sum that up and give a soundbite, CEOs listening today, people running a nonprofit, leaders of any type, thinking about that, attracting the kind of people you want. To me, it sounded almost like you're like planting a lot of seeds and nourishing them. Or how would you say it better?
1: I think that's a good one. I think it is planting a lot of seeds and kind of leaning into this garden analogy right now. But really what you want is you want to hire excellent players. But even more than that, you want an excellent team. So I think it's the knowledge of who you have, what you need, what motivates people. And I do think that going back to your kind of special ops, that's one of the things that's so extraordinary in these stories. It's not that you just have these kind of excellent actors. It's how they know each other so well, have this very deep trust and operate as a unit and as a team. And I would say, actually, over the last couple of years in particular, the team dynamic preoccupies me even more than the kind of individual person, like figuring out what are the gaps in our teams and also taking existing teams and figuring out how are they working together? How could they improve? their engagement with each other. And I'd and credit my own manager at BlackRock with this. Our management committee has done a lot of work together as a group on how we can be the most effective in a room together and, you know, really reflect on what our individual strengths and weaknesses are. That's a really important exercise, I think, for any CEO or leader as well, is actually doing intentional work on your team dynamics.
0: Well, it seems like that must be a BlackRock value given the size that it's become. If I remember right, when you originally got a job, you thought you were applying at Blackstone. And I don't think there's a lot of people that realize BlackRock came out of Blackstone. And if I remember, you're, you were like employee number 134 or something. Is that right?
1: Oh, very good memory, Jess. I don't think I've ever shared that anecdote on a podcast. So thank you for that. But it is true. So BlackRock was very small. When I sent my resume, it was called Blackstone Financial Management. In my defense, it was clearly an investment management firm. But this was the 90s, and private equity was really hot. And remember, I was a theater major, so I really didn't know what I was doing when I started to send out finance resumes. And so the Blackstone Group was really hot, and I thought I was sending my resume to the Blackstone Group. And I sent it to Blackstone Financial Management, which was co-located in the office of the Blackstone Group. But by the time I started, had separated and become BlackRock.
0: How long were you at Blackstone the first time around before you went to Goldman?
1: I was at BlackRock <laughs>
0: at BlackRock. the first time you had to, before. you.
1: <laughs> yeah. So I'm a total boomerang. That's what they call me. I was at BlackRock for four years and I left because, you know, I was a theater major who decided to see what, what my other degree could do. But after four years, I thought I, I wanted to go back to business school. I loved school and, and I have conversations all the time with people here. Should they get an MBA? Should they not? And it's a very personal decision. But for me, I really, I worked really hard for four years and I loved the idea of kind of having two years out and assessing where I was and meeting other people. So I went to business school and Goldman hired me at a business school. And then I was at Goldman for 16 years. And then BlackRock hired me back in 2015. But the funny thing was on my first date back at BlackRock, the security guard looked at me and said, did you work here before? And I was like, how do you know? And he said, well, you're employee 134, and this guy next to you is employee 16,000 or something. They linked (laughs) your employee ID to your social security number, which actually gave me massive cred when I came back. It was pretty cool.
0: (laughs) Smell it. That's awesome. So, you know, Goldman has such an outsized reputation for performance. What made you decide you wanted to come back to BlackRock?
1: You know, I loved working at Goldman. I ended up there really because they reached out to me as part of this diversity recruiting initiative. I walked onto the trading floor and I loved it. I worked in the interest rate market largely for most of my career, and I think really what happened was the financial crisis had a very big impact on me. And I think it really changed the course of my career for a couple of reasons. First, I was pregnant and on maternity leave. My daughter, Eileen, who's 13 now, she was born in October of 2008. I was, you know, nine months pregnant when I was called to go to the trading floor on the Sunday that Lehman declared bankruptcy. And then I ended up kind of watching everything unfold while I was home with a newborn and a 22-month-old. And during a time that, you know, as proud as I had been for those nine years to work at Goldman, banks were really being attacked and the financial services industry was being attacked on all sides. And I felt first defensive about it because I believed in what I did for clients of Goldman Sachs. I thought we did important work. I believed that derivatives were not the root of the financial crisis. There was blame to spread around in lots of places. But at the same time, I really did have conviction that the markets could be better and stronger and more efficient and more transparent. And I think coming out of the crisis, when I came back and, you know, there was a moment where, where all of the world, you know, the G20 leaders all met in Pittsburgh in October of 2009 to talk about market reform. And I realized that I, I, I really wanted to be part of that. I wanted the next part of my career, if I were going to stay in the markets, to be about improving them and making them more transparent. And discovering that first led to some very big turns in my career at Goldman. I ended up doing a lot of what we called market structure strategy work for Goldman, also ended up reconnecting me with BlackRock. And at the time, actually what happened was as part of the market structure strategy I was doing for Goldman, the United States and countries all around the world were rolling out various types of market reform. And I ended up becoming pretty engaged on the policy side, the U.S. was first in terms of really implementing rules. And I testified to Congress on the implications to U.S. competitiveness of potential overreach in derivatives reform. And through that testimony, the then head of public policy for BlackRock, who had been one of my mentors um, and is also a BlackRock founder, Barbara Novick, reached out to me and she said, you know, there's a couple people here I think you should meet. And I didn't know what ETFs, you know, were really, but I started researching them and started a conversation and really developed a conviction that exchange traded funds and indexation were part of the answer for better market resiliency and transparency. So that whole arc really led me, you know, to changes even while I was at Goldman, but ultimately back to BlackRock.
0: I wonder if you have any advice, because it seems like having a passion and pursuing it really did you a huge favor rather than showing up and punching the clock. Do you have any advice for people on how to recognize that this is something worth investing extra time in or, or settling on a passion they're gonna overinvest in?
1: Absolutely. And the first is just the importance of doing that. For me, I was already a managing director when I figured it out. I don't think you have to commit to your life professional mission on you know day one or year one or you know year five. But I think every day having a sense of what you want to accomplish, what you are a part of and what you do, for me, it was the game changer in my career. I think I was really technically proficient and competent, but developing that sense of purpose for me was a total game changer. And it came about through the set of experiences when I became a mom and there were these huge events in the world. But I do think there are ways to be a lot more intentional about it. At BlackRock, we actually rolled out something a few years ago. We called it the purpose tool. And it was about the same time we had kind of revamped our firm's, like our company's purpose statement, which is to help more and more people experience financial well-being. So as part of helping people like understand what that purpose statement was. We had a series of exercises for them to figure out, like, how did their own interests and ambitions fit into that? And there were questions like, what would you do if you knew you couldn't sail? So what's cool is there's a lot of kind of exercises and tools to self-reflect. And I recommend, you know, BlackRock, we keep that on our website here. And there's other places to look. Just kind of doing that exercise a couple of times a year, I think is really important. Kind of writing your personal elevator pitch for why you want to come to work.
0: It's a new app company. The Samara Code app. What happens if every six months you get a prompt to answer the question? I don't know. We should try it here first.
1: it's like a great idea. (laughs) I mean, honestly, I should probably research if that exists because I think that's a very powerful exercise. And I do think you should do it. Revisit it. Keep refining yours a couple of times a year feels right.
0: I want to be respectful of your time. So maybe this will be my final question. My oldest is she's leaving for college here in about two weeks. And she's a real go-getter. Like she's kind of the life of the party, runs the show. We joked when she was a kid, it's like that cartoon Rugrats. She was like Angelica ordering all the children out. Right. And, you know, she's skipping grade 12 to go to college. Like she's the one of these go-getters, right? And I think about a couple of the other women that we've had on the show that I look up to at finance. And my daughter is really considering kind of a lifelong pursuit of real estate finance and, and maybe getting into the family business and these things. So I may have mentioned them when we talked last week, but. Lissette Cooper built up Athena Private Wealth Management, very large, and sold it to a Franklin Templeton subsidiary. And Stacey Havener from Havener Capital, you no, know, not a finance background. She'd been a soccer player in college and has become a third-party marketer. It's raised like eight billion dollars for these startup funds. And I've become quite good friends. And I hear them talk about like at different times of their career, they were they were almost like pretending to be a man and trying not to be as attractive at work, or you know, like doing all these things until they finally became. I remember Stacey talking about like, when she finally embraced being the real her, like being the whole her, it actually like her career did way better. She she proudly tells people that she likes rap music and soccer. <laughs> and she's like her whole self. And it's been extremely magnetic for her. I'm just wondering if you have any advice for my 18 year old daughter on her way possibly to a life in finance.
1: I mean, it sounds like she's gotten like lots of great advice. And I'm not sure that she needs much because that is it. I do think Part of what we talked about in figuring out my purpose was finding my whole self. I mean, we didn't talk that much about the journey of being a woman on a trading floor, but what you said is spot on. I think the early part of my career was very much trying to be one of the guys. Then it was figuring out that there were behaviors that the guys could get away with that I couldn't get away with. And I just kind of had to make peace with that. And then beyond that, it was figuring out actually my differentness can be my superpower. And I had a coach that gave me a book about that. That was, I think it was called The Myth of the Nice Girl or something like that. But it said, nice can be your your superpower. And I also recently listened to a TED Talk by a doctor named Stacey Sims, but it's called Women Are Not Small Men. And it's fascinating because it talks about training for athletes and how so much of it and so much of the research is kind of really just looking at, you know, men's physiology and, and women were generally treated, she says, as as anomalies. So we can't really look at women, but there's this huge body of research now that says actually, if you train women differently, they will have their peak performance. And I think that's what we're figuring out now. So I think, you know, your daughter realizing she should 100% be who she is and lean into that as a superpower. And especially if she ends up being in a place where she doesn't look like everybody else, that can actually work to her advantage. So so that's the best possible advice. And I guess the other thing I'd say is it's awesome if she wants to maybe be in real estate finance and, and go into the family business. But when she's in college, I would encourage her to kind of become who she's going to be just by learning whatever excites her, even if it's theater, you know, even if it's graphic design, finding out who the great teachers are and taking a risk on something. You know, I think it's very rare that you, That you learn something meaningful and and don't find a way to buy it, even if your career takes sharp turns.
0: I love it. Well, thanks for making so much time for us today.
1: Likewise. It was a pleasure talking to you.
0: If people want to learn more about BlackRock ETFs or connect with you, or where would you send people online?
1: There's lots of stuff on my LinkedIn and uh, ishares.com. BlackRock.com and ishares.com. Ishares are the name of our ETFs. It's a great place to learn about us.
0: That's so great. Thanks again for doing this.
1: Thank you, Jess.